I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed. Welcome back to Baselayer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Jeff Morris Jr., the founder at Chapter One, an early stage product fund. Jeff has been someone that I have been reading and watching on social media and Twitter for a number of years, and this was just a, a prolific conversation. Jeff, every year at the beginning of the year, puts out about 10 or so predictions, if you will, forecasts uh, for what will happen in the world of technology. And every year it is spot on. Uh, he has such a great pulse on the world out there. And so on this uh, particular case, we talked about the future of Face ID, especially in a post-COVID world. We talked about student debt. We had a long conversation about social 2.0. We talked a lot about how Twitter is using this new fact-checking capability and what that means. We talked about the future of work and working from home and how effective that is. We also talked about investing in climate, um, and we also rounded it out with a conversation on Bitcoin and all the things that are happening in the world of digital assets. This is an amazing conversation, and it is just a very encompassing one, and you're going to really enjoy it. I really, you know, Jeff is just an amazing thinker, and he's a great investor. So uh, have fun with it, and we'll see you on the flip side. Take care. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer, and I really, really am excited about this. I say that a lot, but the guest I have right now, Jeff Morris Jr., who is founder at Chapter One, is someone that I have been reading. I say that because he's very active on Twitter. I've been reading his posts for a few years now, and I am always awestruck because he has been able to come up with ways of forecasting things that are happening in our world, in our society, in our economic systems, in technology better than many people I've ever seen. And so, Jeff, thank you for coming on today. How are you? David, so excited to be here. Um, and thank you for those kind of words. I um, I appreciate it. I spend my life trying to be a professional forecaster, as so many other people do um, through investing. So I appreciate those words. And so let's dig into that. So let's go into your background. How did you get to a point where you've been able to really kind of be on the pulse of technology and some of these narratives? And we're going to go into a lot of those narratives, but let's go into your past and kind of how you got into the world of tech and how you really were able to kind of refine yourself and be able to be such a great forecaster. Yeah. So I think um, I grew up around Menlo Park, um, was always around technology growing up, went to Menlo High School, which is about five minutes from Sand Hill Road. And as a result, um, I think I just grew up with kind of a, 
a nerdy group of friends who had nerdy parents and we were always um, doing things uh, online before everybody else. And so mm-hmm. whether it was, um, you know, like I, I used to, in high school, I ran a, a sports memorabilia business on in AOL chat rooms um, and would, mm-hmm. would spend, spend my free time um, bartering within, within on AOL and then um, became a quick adopter of eBay, you know, as a result. Mm-hmm. And just have always been um, kind of surrounded by technology. So I think spotting trends just on a geographic basis was easier at that point in time because you didn't have as many social products to, to distribute um, those things. And so a lot of it was just growing up and then, um, you know, going to my, my college internships were, were in at tech companies. So um, when I was coming home to live with my parents, the internships available were, were in tech. And so that's what I did. And, uh, you know, I think just kind of growing up around, around the area really helped me. And then academically, I can't really point to anything that, that necessarily helped me. I studied English in college, um, went to film school for my MFA. I eventually did an MBA at UCLA, but really, uh, have a non-technical educational background and, I've just kind of been doing this, this startup thing for a long time and have been, um, been around the game long enough to see, see a few cycles. So it was, uh, you know, I came into to the industry when right around the time when mobile was really starting to take off. So, um, definitely kind of hopped in, in the ecosystem at, at a pretty exciting time. Right. And, I'm going to say this many times, but if you are on Twitter, I would give Jeff an immediate follow because it has been something very rewarding for myself. He challenges a lot of people, but again, at the beginning of the year, and he's done this, I think in the last two years, maybe more, um, but for the last few years, he's been at the beginning of the year posting these forecasts, these ideas that he has, the technology trends that he thinks are evolving and becoming more important for us to take a look at. And so I'm going to start with one of them. <clears throat> and so at the beginning of this year, you mentioned the future of Face ID. Um, and so I'm curious, um, go into that a little bit, the future of Face ID, obviously Apple's phone and you know the ability of not necessarily having to remember passwords. How is that evolving right now in a post-COVID world with masks? I know that Apple just released a update, which is supposed to obviously help with that. But, you know, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are when we might be having to wear masks for the next few years, maybe until this vaccine becomes more uh, pertinent and available. And then I also agree with you on the biometrics that are clearly important in this world. You also you said that, you know, obviously biometrics can become so important. We're starting to see more emphasis on the idea. And I'm going to air quote contactlessness. And so even from Domino's to, you know, your CVS, they're all talking about having no contact. You know, it's right there. No one's touched it. And so the future of Face ID in a post kind of COVID world with masks and this idea of biometrics and how this world of being, you know, without contact is becoming so important. Yeah. So there were two things happening that got me interested in in Apple's relationship to biometric data. Um the first, which was before before um, the iPhone and, and Face ID, was AirPods, and so I started to look a lot um, at AirPods and what biometric data you could um, extract from from having iPods in your ear all in your ears all day. Um, so that was one one area. And then um, was also looking a lot at the Apple Watch, 
Um, and, you know, I think if you've watched the past um, uh, release cycles for Apple, they're all focused on making Apple a health company. And so um, their product roadmap looks like uh, putting a bunch of sensors on your body. Um, you know, we now have them on our ears, we have them on our wrist, and in the future we'll have them on our eyes through through some form of Apple glasses. Mm-hmm. And so I became really interested with um, what you could do with the health kit, the Apple health kit API. And um, uh, for a long time was looking at it in the context of mental health and wellness. Um, and trying to see um, uh, if variations in your biometric data um, might allow you to know more about the things that stress you out in your life, um, mm. or the things that um, that might cause things like like depression. And so, um, from some of that research, I, I discovered um, some of the the research being done around around AirPods and and the human voice. You can detect things like PTSD through um, if you collect enough data from, from people. And so, um, so I've just become really fascinated by that space and that led me to, you know, when Apple released the face ID, um, it seemed like a really, um, interesting wedge to making us more comfortable with the idea of, um, allowing platforms to have access to, to our facial ID data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a long, for a long time, that's been something, something that's pretty scary, um, for a lot of people, and we've seen the examples in, in China where you have a database of every citizen and, you know, at every streetlight, you know, who's, who's traveling where and, um, what they're purchasing and, and, and that, that just tends to freak people out. And so I think right. Apple's done, done a good job of making it really lightweight. Everyone unlocks their phone and, and, uh, is looking to save time. Um, and so tapping with, with, uh, you know, you know, tapping four digits with your fingers every time you want to unlock your phone is an inefficiency. And so they've done a good job of, of just making it really seamless and, and making consumers comfortable. Isn't that crazy? Tapping four digits or six digits is now an inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and it's even more convenient when you're living in New York and it's, you know, this is true. 20, 20 degrees outside in the winter. And you're not true. wearing the right pair of gloves. Um, and so I think Apple's done a, a great job of making it really, um, like the core use cases right now are unlock your phone and download apps and, um, and perhaps payments. But mm-hmm. when you start to think about a post COVID world and, and how that might play out, um, basically anywhere you need to prove how, who you are, or how old you are, um, that could be a use case for biometric data as opposed to, uh, showing your ID or, um, or any form of identification. So, you know, some use cases that I've just, checked out would be like when you have a meeting at a building why do you need to walk in and uh, and type in your email address and use um you know the typical kind of like mm-hmm. security tools what why can't that just be your your face um, yeah. um and what are kind of the wedges or the everyday inconveniences where we're willing to give up that data um because it's just simply more efficient i think um some of it's kind of like transactional, but maybe it could be also baked within social products and things that are more fun. Um, so it's not, it's not purely transactional, um, in its, in its use case. It's so funny you bring this up because 
obviously people who listen to my show know that I'm on the digital asset kind of blockchain world side of things. And I'm obviously interested in how blockchains can provide more privacy and how different digital assets can provide more privacy in terms of financial transactions. But at the same time, using Apple Pay is so damn easy. It's just like, click, click, you see my face, boom, I'm done. I don't want to have to deal with this anymore, especially in a post-COVID world. I, I went with to uh, a pharmacy yesterday to pick up a few things, and all of those kiosks obviously have Apple Pay. And I'm just like, thank God, because I haven't been in a store in like three months. And so I you know, show it to my face, it, bam, it pops up. I click it right there, and I'm out. I don't have to touch anything, which is amazing. Um, especially cause I'm, I'm paranoid person who doesn't like to touch anything anyway, but you're absolutely right. I just think that, you know, this idea of not having to touch things is becoming a real prevalent narrative. And so really interesting. Let's go on to the next one that you talked about, uh, student debt. So in my opinion, or what we're seeing right now, schools are going more remote and obviously we obviously referring back to COVID again, every student out there, whether they were in elementary school all the way to college, had to go home and many students and parents have become frustrated that they're basically paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for MOOCs, for, you know, online learning. Um, and so I'm curious about your thoughts on that uh, as regards to student debt and what's happening with this move towards remote, which may not go away uh, starting in September and any kind of thoughts on the future of education. Yeah. So we were all forced to adopt MOOCs um, due to COVID. And I think, the result has been, as you mentioned, parents who are paying high tuitions, whether it's, um, I mean, my, my, my brother pays for private school for his five-year-old and 10-year-old daughter, um, but, but people are forced to question the value of, mm-hmm. of education in an online world. Um, yeah. And so I think, I think people are trying to figure out what to do for this, for the 2020 school year. So that's a big question is, and I'm seeing a lot of uh, folks taping, taking gap years at the college level, mm-hmm. um, especially hard for, I've seen this a lot with incoming freshmen and, um, or at the grad school level kind of first years, because it's, it's tough to get oriented without that in-person interaction. But on a, on a MOOC level, like what it's really done is, is we have online schools and we now have teachers delivering um, online content through their brands. So whether it's uh, a college or university or a high school and uh, the, the playing field has kind of been leveled to just like who delivers the best quality content and what's the best platform to deliver that content. Um, but I think what, what that's shown is just the, the waste that goes into running offline schools um, and the things that we're forced to pay for, we, we shouldn't have to cover those same costs in an online world. And so, like you said, it's, a lot of a lot of um, parents and students who are taking on debt are are having asked themselves the hard question of is this is this worth it right now? Right. And so, um, I've I've been I was a, a investor and an employee at a company called Lambda School, which um, if some of your listeners know, it's mm-hmm. it's the concept of income sharing agreements to pay for your your education. So students no longer take on debt, but you end up it's 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 totally free until you get hired um and when you get hired you're you then um repay the school percentage of your salary for two or three years um it's it's capped so it's it's but but a lot of people are questioning um uh student debt just as a a financial instrument and there's a lot of innovation right now 
as well on, on the ISA side. And so um, it's, it's a really interesting time in, in education. I think, you know, in terms of venture returns, education has been a, a tough category, but there's a lot of people who are trying to, to disrupt education, whether it's through homeschooling or, or even, even through more vocational focused schools. I know one of the first calls I made was to my friends at Owl Ventures who have been in the ed tech space for a number of years. And I started asking them, I'm like, what do I start using? What are the best tools? What do I, what do I do? And, uh, you know, luckily there are things like uh, the Khan Academy and Coursera and uh, some good things out there. I've used Coursera too, to uh, take a few online classes, but you're right. It's, you know, I'm paying X amount of dollars for a class on Coursera, you know, even though it might be at Stanford, and then you got someone, you know, a kid who's paying thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year for tier one school who is effectively getting the same quality. And so it's really there's going to be some friction there. And I don't know when that's going to go away, but uh, it's definitely I think it's enlightened people to the actual value that those institutions have when you go there. And uh, really something interesting that we'll continue to watch moving to social 2.0. <clears throat> and so I'm curious with Twitter now unleashing some new protocols to provide this, and this became a hot topic, fact-checking. And, you know, obviously some politicians who will rename Nameless got fact-checked and they did not like it. What's your opinion on what's going on there? So is fact-check, you know, this idea of a fact-check, is that, in your opinion, a form of censorship? Or is this going to bring a new form of social? And kind of going back again to some of the things that I focus in on, you know, the, I mean, these ideas of decentralized and distributed systems, one of the components of that is a reputation system. And so how do you actually say, how do you actually know who you are and how do you actually attest to who you are and how does that actually get validated in these kind of systems? And so I'm curious about all those different kind of moving parts in social 2.0 is, is this no, notion of fact checking really censorship and, you know, is it going to bring about a new form there? Obviously, Twitter is playing around with a lot of those different components. And this idea of a reputation system, how does that play into the idea of a new social 2.0? Yeah, so I, this was a hot topic last week um, and maybe the past two weeks, really, because of the differences between Twitter's approach to um, to Trump's tweets uh, relative to Facebook. And so um, you, you've always seen Twitter take a, a more opinionated um, stance on uh, from Jack on how the platform should evolve and behave. But I think what you saw at Facebook was uh, uh, Zuckerberg trying to do something similar, but he took a, an opposite approach. And for him, it it backfired mm -hmm. with employees quitting um, uh, and just a lot of questions to the point where yesterday Facebook announced that they're bringing back Chris Cox, who was their former chief product officer. Um, and, you know, we don't know if the two events are related, but it's pretty clear that Chris Cox coming back after a year out of Facebook um, during this moment to me is a signal that they're really questioning um, that decision and, and are being forced to reconsider their approach to, to fact-checking. Um, in terms of, of the fact-checking in the future, I think in a decentralized world, we've seen attempts at this. Um, you know, true story was, I think the... Yep. The example we all know of, they of course shut down um, probably four or five months ago, and I was I was excited about that. I never I never Me dug too. into um, the incentive structure enough to to speak um, speak about why why it didn't work, but it seems like 
to, to build that network, you need to have, um, like you said, financial or reputational rewards that, that actually matter, um, where you can, you can build critical mass. And, um, I think a bigger problem too, is, you know, people have their political, um, preferences and they choose, they choose to go to the, the websites that align with their, that's right. Uh, their perspectives on the world. And so one, one, um, company idea I've had for a long time and I, I'm not going to build it, but if anyone wants to build it, let me know, uh, would be a company called, I was calling it purple. And basically you have an interface where the left side of the, the site is CNN and the right side is Fox and somewhere in the middle of the, of the interface is what you'd have. It would ideally be more balanced commentary, but the, the challenge with balanced commentary is, um, all of us have our, uh, our opinions on the world and, and, you know, like veracity and truth is hard to, to quantify or, um, or prove at this point, right. like any store, every single story has two perspectives and finding that finding truth is just, it's very subjective and hard to, to, to determine. That's right. Uh, and, and so it's, it's like, we all have to basically make up our own, minds as to what might be true or false where maybe in the maybe in the early 1900s you read the new york times and that was your source of truth you know it's interesting that you know in thinking about this i've talked to my wife about this actually we have a lot of conversations about this because we're actually on the polar opposite sides of the political spectrum and it actually makes us work because we 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 fight we have conflict we debate and we actually you know come to some sort of an agreement which is what we should all be trying to do. But at the same time, it was really interesting because if you look at Twitter now, and this actually kind of goes to what's happening with, you know, the economic stuff, especially if you think back about 2008, 2009 with Occupy Wall Street, they didn't have this idea of a social network like Twitter that you could almost have a megaphone, a digital megaphone to get out to hundreds and thousands of millions of people to kind of say, okay, here's a picture, here's what's happening live, or you can stream something live and you can show it right now. Obviously, we saw what happened with George Floyd and that went viral real quick. And obviously, you know, what happened happened from that. You know, I'm curious, do you think that we would be, if we had that back in 2008 and 2009 during Occupy Wall Street, do you think that would have changed the overall trajectory of history? Would that have been a massive effect as it is, obviously, it, we've seen it now. But if we would have had that back then, do you think it would have been amazingly effective? Um, you know, I think the, I think at the time, and I was, um, I spent a lot of time in New York during that that moment in time. People were were really frustrated and fed up with the financial system, and um, Twitter did exist, but it wasn't as powerful as, as it is today. I don't know if it would change. I'm trying to think like what would have changed the course of history. Like if, if there was a louder microphone, um, like what, uh, you know, like would there have been political reform or financial reform that would actually impact the world? It's hard for me without kind of spending more time on the subject. Cause um, today we're seeing the the whole defund police thing happen. And then all of a sudden you've seen what's happened in Minnesota. You've seen what's happened in Seattle. It just, to me, it seems that, we have Twitter has become a massively powerful digital megaphone. And when you use it and you use it in the very specific ways that it has enabled, 
things can happen, which it did not seem that, you know, 10 years ago, it really did not seem that it was used to that effect. And so, yeah, it's powerful and it's, um, it's warranted. I mean, I think the police brutality against minorities is disgusting and gross. Mm -hmm. Um, and everyone has a camera in their pocket. And so it provides a certain level of accountability that unfortunately our public institutions don't seem to have within their, their, their infrastructure and their operational work. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, but it, it, you know, every, you have to assume everything in the world will be recorded. And if you, if you do terrible things, you know, the results will be, you'll find it'll be exposed. um, And that's, you know, I think that's very powerful and can, for a lot of, a lot of people actually provide a very, a lot of comfort in their day to day where, um, we can start to, um, on a different level in terms of, of how we, how we were able to come together. Um, Mm -hmm. we can, we can start to self-police, um, you know, the bad actors in our, in our world. The almighty checks and balances. There you go. So let's pivot into the future of work. Um, and I will give you credit. You really called it there. So, I would love to hear, obviously we're both working from home um, and hundreds of thousands of millions of other people are doing so too. So how do you think in terms of effectiveness, how do you think that's working so far, this whole kind of experiment of working from home, everyone's been going on Zoom or Google Hangouts or Microsoft Teams. And, you know, I'm kind of curious, do you think this is going to be something that is lasting for a much longer time than just COVID as we've seen with Twitter and some of the other tech, uh, tech companies they're actually allowing their employees to work from home for the rest of the year. Do you think this is something that sticks with us for a bit? I, I 100% think so. And you've seen, uh, I mean, it, it very much depends on industry and, um, and type of work. So, but for anything kind of in the knowledge workspace, um, it's pretty clear that, that remote work does, um, does work. You know, you can, you can get things done in this, in this format, there's been a lot of data. There was a really good survey. Um, this venture firm called NFX did it, and they asked CEOs um, in in April what their views on on the future of remote work might be. And 21% in April said that they thought they'd be comfortable with majority remote work. And then they reran the survey in June, two months later, and now 40% say that they're they're comfortable with um, majority the majority of their team being remote. Wow. And so. And then you're seeing um, policy adoption at major tech companies being um, Twitter, Square, uh, who else? I mean, I mean, it's been, and, and even Facebook is, is hinting that they'll be in the next 10 years um, a remote first organization. And so a lot of, a lot of companies are, are adopting this policy. I think, you know, there's, there's some lines of work where, where being in person does help quite a bit. And so right. I think one of the areas that's been challenging is, is anything creative where you, you have kind of like serendipitous collaboration that leads to some, some output of work. Mm-hmm. That's still, that's still tough to do on, on zoom. Um, you, you know, like the digital whiteboard hasn't been solved yet. Um, right. I, I know there's been people who have tried, um, I think Miro is one of the companies trying, but that to me seems like the, the biggest area where, um, where 
you know, that hasn't been solved. I think on a, uh, like a, a benefit level for society, I think the, the kind of like, like everybody is in play for any job and mm-hmm. kind of the best candidate wins. Um, and so you're able to offer, um, employees that flexibility and, um, really expand your talent pool and the downstream impact to, to salaries, I think will be really interesting to see. Um, uh, especially within kind of jobs that have been traditionally, um, uh, I won't use the word overpay, but, but have been, um, uh, people who, who, you know, I'm thinking of software engineers, um, and, and you, you really kind of expand the talent pool. So that will be interesting to see. So I'm curious as an investor and chapter one, you are an investor and you're looking for a lot of these companies. Um, how has it over the last few months with the idea of working from home? And I know other uh, early stage venture investors have talked about this publicly, but how has it actually been for you? Is it difficult to really engage with a team and founders on Zoom and have that confidence versus seeing them in person and going to their office? For me, I do earlier stage, um, kind of like 100 to 300 K checks. So I'm not leading big, big series A's or series mm-hmm. B's. It's been, it's been comfortable. Um, and I've, I've been working out of Los Angeles for the past four and a half, five years. And so, um, I'm used to, to and the majority of my companies I fund don't, aren't, aren't within Los Angeles. So I'm, I'm very comfortable with funding over Zoom. The, you know, the bigger challenge is if you, if you've never met someone, are you willing to, to write, you know, a big growth run check. And I think the later stage capital has been a little bit slower in terms of deployment because unless you had a pre-existing relationship with, with that founder, it's, you know, it's harder to get kind of the, um, the interaction that you need to make that, that big decision. But I'm seeing a lot of, uh, investors doing more kind of, um, uh, walk with the mask pitches within San Francisco. Oh, really? So, um, you, you know, you can see that changing from a, a time perspective. It's actually for me a lot more efficient to not, not be Ubering around the city, especially in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, meeting entrepreneurs for coffee or whatever it might be. Right. Um, I find it a lot more efficient just to hop on zoom and, and if the meeting is not going well, you can cut the cord after 20, <laughs> 20 minutes. Whereas, you know, in Los Angeles, every single meeting you take is, um, is a two to three hour commitment because you're right. driving around the city. And so I think also it's, um, it's opened up the, uh, the addressable market for who you might invest in. Cause we're all so comfortable now on right. zoom. Whereas, you know, five months ago, I think people felt really uncomfortable on video and we've seen this societal shift where, y- you know, we've adapted. That's right. I still have to say that, you know, I am not a fan of those, you know, kind of false backgrounds on Zoom where you look like you're in space or you're on the San Francisco, you know, on the Golden Gate Bridge. I do not use those. I'm sorry. I'm never going to use those. Those just look ridiculous. So if someone's going to be building something for that, hopefully they're building some nicer ones where if you move your head around, because we are humans, we do move our head around. You don't look like you're ridiculously out of whack or out of focus, it looks ridiculous. So if someone's working on that, that's great. Um, I want to change to investing in climate. Now, for many people who know, I had a lot of experience in this space from the family office world as an investor in there, uh, focusing on uh, carbon capture and deforestation and many of those different themes. 
And so we started to see an uprising in the beginning of the year, kind of before COVID took over. And you saw a lot of the larger GPs out there carving out new funds. You saw USV, you saw Fred write a very heartening uh, you know, post about it and how they were getting involved with it. And then obviously COVID hit and then obviously the issues around social injustices have been sweeping you know, around the country. And so I'm kind of curious, do you feel that some of the energy has been zapped out of the kind of the climate focus and the refocus? I, I saw this um, when, when COVID started, it felt like, so I guess going back to January when traditionally venture funds um, kind of write their perspective on, on what they want to invest in. And you saw Union Square and, and Sequoia and a few other folks um, really have loud um, uh, uh, stances on, on wanting to invest in climate and um, feeling like now is the right time to do so after, as you mentioned, maybe in the mid 2000s with uh, the green tech collapse, um, it, it was, you know, there was a lot of, there's been a lot of scar tissue on the category. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's, I think that's still true and genuine. Um, I do think investment energy, especially due to COVID has, has kind of, there's been so many platform shifts with like work from home being the new platform that, uh, we've been looking for as, as within the venture community, um, similar to, to the iPhone. Um, a lot of people are declaring this to be the new, literally the new platform that we've been waiting for. Um, so I think a lot of energy has been spent refocusing on, 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 on that. Um, I do think the green, green tech and we'll call it climate tech, um, uh, investment declarations were authentic and candid, um, especially from, from USV. And I have seen them write checks in the space. They did one out of YC, um, just in the last batch, but, you know, I think I think the two things that are tough in climate tech, and you you know this much better than me, is the feedback loops are incredibly hard. Um, yep. So it's very hard to know how how much progress you're making, and there's not a lot of tangible um, uh, feedback. And then, um, uh, you know, within within the venture, it's 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 just not a category that a lot of people know at this point. It doesn't have uh, like SaaS return profiles where you're yep. able to easily benchmark it, and so. I think it just makes a lot of people really nervous. Um, and a lot of the founders I've talked to are quite frankly, a lot smarter than me on, on mm-hmm. the space. And so there's just a lot of um, uh, diligence involved with making sure that you're, you're uh, you know, the scientific uh, approach is, is actually true and, and, yeah. and correct. And, and for a lot of people, it's just, it's just a lot of time. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of my, uh, my view. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know, what happened was in 2007, 2008, you had the solar bust and everyone kind of got shuffled out. You know, when you would talk to people about an impact or a sustainable investment, they had a sour taste in their mouth. And what happened was, is that a lot of those companies that were funded by big VCs back in 07, 08, 09, they were more industrial. They were not, as you said, cap light. They were very cap heavy, actually. And so what you've seen over the last few years is that a lot of those companies, especially in things like smart buildings, have really deployed a lot of the SaaS-based analytics, the sensors, and how do you actually use cap light technology to actually get a result? And so that happened over the last five years. And so, you know, I was really excited at the beginning of the year, obviously, because a lot of attention was starting to be paid to it. Um, But as we've said, you know, a larger event happened 
that has changed the dynamic. But at the same time, you know, COVID will, you know, in some way there will be a vaccine. We all pray and we all hope and we all are paying attention to our scientists and rooting them on for that. And that will have some level of success in a shorter duration period of time. But this is the planet we all live on. So we have to try to make sure that we don't completely destroy it because Elon hasn't gotten us to Mars yet. And so, you know, there's a lot we got to what a lot we got to pay attention to. The last thing I want to talk about with you. And of course, as I said, as my focus has been, you know, away from, you know, other pieces of venture into more of the emergent stuff happening with digital assets, would love to hear your takes on Bitcoin. Uh, I know you discussed that, you know, in a post-COVID world, uh, paper money is now kind of associated with potentially carrying the virus and adoption may rise. I would love to get your sense of what you're seeing there and what your thoughts are. Yeah, so it's been. Um, it seems like every conversation comes back to Bitcoin, right? Which is uh, <laughs> like I spent a lot of time in in 2017 um, investing in the space and did did a lot of um, deals in in DeFi and um, you know, compound finance, reserve protocol, um, and then I did a few a few kind of more on ramp focused investments. So I did a company called Lolly. Um, mm-hmm. Alex Adelman, nice job. Yeah, so I've, I've spent enough time in the space to to have some point of view. I think um, I, I, I think in a COVID world, like I was more surprised to see. I, I think we all thought that, like in March, when the markets were collapsing, that perhaps there'd be um, a rush to to crypto as kind of a an asset that wasn't uh, falling off a cliff. But it's it's you know like the correlation um, between public markets and and Bitcoin seem to be, be pretty strong. Um, I, I still think the biggest issue with with the entire space, and um, we talked about it earlier, is just the on ramps and the the use cases and the ease of transacting mm-hmm. is still is still way too great for any single everyday use case. So you've mm-hmm. basically seen the entire ecosystem um, and the main use case around speculation and, and making making money. And so um, I think the original promise of, of decentralize everything, um, maybe that's just a longer vision and, mm. and hopefully we get there. But um, to me, the, the impetus of, of Bitcoin, as you mentioned um, earlier, was people stopped trusting our financial institutions and our government to, to tell them how, um, how they should use their money and, and where they should use it. And, um, and we, you know, we wanted something that was digital first and, um, and that all comes back to Bitcoin for me. And so, um, I don't know, I don't know if you're excited about specific projects in the space, but, um, I do think some of the, um, uh, some things in lending are interesting. I, I do, I am a huge fan of compound finance. Um, but, but, um, but for the most part, I think, We've, we've we're still kind of stuck on the honor app problem, um, which is how do you get more people to to own Bitcoin and understand it and, and see the value? Right. And shout out to Robert Leshner. I've been asking him to come on the show for about a year, but every time we we get into that conversation, things get busy. And uh, obviously, Compound has been up to a lot of things lately. Yeah, you know, I'd say you're absolutely right. I always like to say on my show that I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm not an Ethereum maximalist. I'm a knowledge maximalist. And what does that mean to me is that 
I have my eyes open to all the different possibilities out there. And so with Bitcoin, that has a, a specific part uh, in the ecosystem and our society. And that would be a, a store value and something that very similar to what the internet and email gave us with the ability to send correspondence around the world without having a rent seeker in the middle that allows us to move around our assets and hold our assets without having that rent seeker there. And then on the other side of the things, you have the ability to build Web3, which has been something that has been talked about for a few years, but it's becoming more of a realization where you know the cat, you know the tech stack better than anyone because you've been involved in, in technology for so long. Where you know it, when you do a Google search on your phone, it comes in a few you know a few seconds, but there are processes behind processes that are being done, whether that's handshakes, whether that's you know going through all the different components there, and all of that is being rebuilt in a more distributed and decentralized manner for this new emergence. And so the Web3 thesis is something that I definitely am very interested in. And I think that uh, given your perspective, I agree that it's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow because it is a tremendous lift. You know, the things that we have today, the apparatuses that we use today have been built, you know, over 20, 30, 40 odd years. And so, you know, it, it would take a monumental you know, kind of uh, ability to be able to build and rebuild something that fast in that shorter period of time. But we are moving there and we are seeing a lot of progress. And so one of the things I'd like to do with our guests before we let them go, and I've really, really loved this conversation. You know, there are two things that we typically put into our brain, I like to say, on a daily basis, hopefully uh, to nourish it and to give it a little bit of sustenance is books and music. And I'd love to hear if you've read anything recently that resonated with you um, and any music that you like. Yeah, sure. So music's a big, a big part of my daily routine. Um, there's a few uh, playlists that I have, which I'm happy to share, um, but I, I tend to be kind of a deep work um, junkie. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it's just ambient music that um, doesn't have a ton of lyrics. Um, and I'm trying to, to, when I'm trying to get things done, I just kind of have, um, have those sounds on the background. So, you know, like the, the most popular version of that is, is Tycho, but I would say some variations of, of kind of Tycho inspired music, mm -hmm. um, uh, T-Y-C-H-O, um, mm -hmm. are things that, that help me get work done. And then in terms of books, um, I must say I'm, I've been kind of overwhelmed with the news cycle. And so I've been, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of my best, uh, the things I, I trust the most are just newsletters. And so, um, uh, obviously the, the popular example is Ben Thompson, mm -hmm. but, um, I think I subscribe to like 10 or 15, uh, Substack newsletters at this point. And wow. I, I kind of find, um, the best information that I, I get tends to come from, from, uh, from different, there's another great newsletter, um, called 2 p.m. It's kind mm -hmm. of like the, the um, yeah, it's, it's a very uh, e-commerce and uh, D2C focused newsletter, I think, and consumer focused newsletter. I think that's really great. But I would encourage, I think the best writers in the world right now are shifting from, um, from these big organizations, the New York Times, to just controlling their audience and monetizing directly. And um, we've seen that a lot with The Athletic. And so... Yeah. I'm, I'm for better or worse, I'm way more interested in, in newsletters than, than books right now. 
Awesome. So if anyone wanted to reach out to you, share ideas, maybe build that platform you were talking about with Purple or anything like that, where can they find you on Twitter or any place else? Yeah, J- uh, JMJ on Twitter. I have my DMs open. I'm happy to to talk and exchange ideas. So feel free to reach out. And, um, and I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Amazing. I did too. Uh, again, Jeff Morris Jr., someone that I have been watching and reading for quite some time. This was an honor and hopefully we can have you back on maybe at the beginning of next year when you release your next uh, predictions. Hopefully uh, we can have some happy ones because we need a little joy here in the world. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.